Hi there. I would like to update you on N-Square, the conference we've been talking about it on this podcast. I'm really proud of the great programming, exceptional speakers, and unbelievable excitement we generated for N-Squared. However, the raging COVID Delta variant and the uncertainty it poses on travel and safety across the nation have made us rethink whether our celebration and excitement should be put on hold. We have decided to move the meeting to February 24th, 2022, which also happens to be Steve Jobs' birthday. Steve Jobs believed in the power of technology for transforming education. He will remain the pioneer for mobile technologies for generations to come. And he has been my role model for innovation, entrepreneurship, and end-to-end integrated design. I would like to celebrate his legacy by discussing the future of education at N-Squared on February 24, 2022. You can find more information about N-Squared at nsquared.events. Again, that's nsquared.events. I look forward to seeing you in February. Stay safe and stay healthy. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Kieran Kuritala. I have with me an exciting guest who is a published author and also an amazing educator as well, Komal Shah. Komal Shah is an educational consultant and thought leader on mission to transform the world through conscious education. And we'll hear all about it on this episode. After Komal spent five years in Teach for America program as a middle school educator, she was left wanting more. She wanted more for her kids, all kids. To pursue this dream, she attended USC Marshall School of Business, where she received her MBA. Today, she leverages her passion for education, business expertise, and her personal conscious living practices. Her plan is to shift outdated educational paradigms and transform the educational system for the betterment of all children. Komal, welcome to Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Yay, thanks, Karen. I'm excited to be here. So this is really good because it gave me an opportunity to read a book in preparation for (laughs) meeting. So as a proof, I have this book. I'm holding this race for your hand in front of me. Obviously, we'll put it in the show notes. And there's a lot of interesting things that you wrote about in this book. And first of all, congratulations. You're very young and you've already seen and done a lot of things. And we'll talk about it on this podcast. (laughs) But I want to start with the premise here. One of the premises that you started with is this nice parable or even a scary parable that you wrote about. It's obviously a mythical story, I suppose, where a group of villagers standing on a river see that there are young toddlers or young infants coming down the river and they run, jump into the water and try to save the kids. And the more kids they save, the more kids are coming down the river, ultimately to a point where they had to build hospitals and build the entire systems around this kids down the river problem until one person says, you know, we are fixing the symptom, which is kids are flowing down the river, but without understanding what the root cause is, and they go up the hill. And I'm not going to go into the full story, but the premise of this discussion is that education system is a root cause. I'm not going to get into the detail, but I want you to tell me what the premise is on how you compare the current education system to kids being thrown down a river to (laughs) hopefully be rescued by some strangers. 
Well, first of all, I'll say the parable was supposed to make you go, whoa, she's really talking about babies going down a river. That's like a little much. <laughs> but I think just philosophically, a lot of what the parable is talking about is the fact that we live in a society that is reactionary. We live in a society where, you know, we're not necessarily always talking about, for example, working out or nutrition, but we wait until someone has health problems and then we talk about you should go to the doctor or to the hospital, right? So we are constantly in a society where preventative measures tend to not be spoken about. And as we can see nowadays, there's a mental health crisis. We talk a lot more openly about going to therapy and going to these different places to get help, but we're not necessarily talking about why are kids and adults going here in the first place, right? Are we equipping our young people with the tools and the necessary aids that they need from a young age to navigate life? So that way, even if they go to a therapist, they have still been able to be equipped with things to do themselves. And I bring that up because if we talk a lot about the mental health crisis, you know, you can hear a lot about kids saying, well, in school, you know, we have a lot of pressure to achieve and we need to get good grades and we need to get good test scores because my mom wants me to go to that one college and I really need to get in. And so we constantly are pushing all of these expectations on our young people. And then we're wondering, well, you know, why are they not fulfilled? You know, why are they still suffering? What's going on? And I think the real question we need to ask ourselves is, is our education system actually supporting our young people to understand what it means to find your purpose and to be fulfilled and to live and navigate life, you know, full and with potential? Or are we going to continue to put these external benchmarks until they have a breakdown one day? So that was kind of the extent of what I was talking about and, and how our system, in my opinion, is a part of the problem. I totally get it for sure. And I want to dig deeper on this. We've had enough of this podcast episodes where some people are very much vested in education, where this is a status quo and we need to support the status quo premise. And some people are true disruptors. But there's a couple of root causes you identify as the grading system or the mm -hmm. assessment system as the root cause of all anxiety or mm -hmm. our peon like learning system where kids are standing on a bench and learning by somebody uh, sage on stage model is a problem that is causing several issues but let's take the assessment anxiety correlation yeah the question is if we remove assessment then one could argue that there is no anxiety but i've done enough of this where for example, when I play golf, I try to become better every time I do it. Yeah. And that betterment causes anxiety. Whether when I'm hiking, every time I climb, you say about this in your brother and you hiking and you climb up one of the small summits or hills and your brother says, well, let's go to the next one. So the question is, is the assessment the root cause of our human tendency to keep elevating ourselves? Or our human tendency to elevate ourselves rooted in how we are building assessments? That's a question I want to ask because, you know, how much of this is because education is causing us to keep moving more and more and more higher up or our intention to keep moving higher and higher up is made us build assessments? First of all, I would say assessments and grading are not the problem. The problem is how we are messaging them. That is the problem. So what we're doing is 
we're messaging to our young children that your value and your worth is based on how you do on these benchmarks, because how you do on these benchmarks will lead to ultimately your success and will lead you to be more fulfilled in your life. And a lot of this is implicit. It's not explicit. We're not necessarily standing in the classroom telling the kids, well, you're a failure. You know, we're never saying that. But we are applauding the ones who are doing well. We are applauding the ones who are getting good scores and good grades. And so we are messaging it all the time. So that itself is the issue. The thing is, is if we cultivate the love of learning in our children, then they will automatically do well on the assessment. But when we just teach the test and we only talk about the SAT and we only talk about those tests that they need to take, and actually we are testing this generation more than we've ever really had before. And so it's become worse and worse over the years is that messaging in itself is teaching our young people to internalize that their value is beyond what they have to add to the world. Right. And so I saw that all the time with my kids, you know, I taught middle school, they were 10 and 11. I happened to teach math, which happens to be a subject that unfortunately is not assessed always the best. And it's always about the right or wrong answer. And so, you know, you would see kids who have so many gifts and are intelligent and have so much that they want to add to the world. And yet, this one assessment makes them feel that they are a failure. And so it's really having that conversation about assessments can be fine and we can have that conversation. But what are we truly assessing? What do we care to assess? Is this the best way to assess our children? Is memorization the best way to do it? So we also need to talk about the quality of our assessments because we need to realize that when our kids are failing them, that they're actually internalizing what they believe they can be on the planet, which is not what we ever want. So I think it really goes down to the messaging. You can have benchmarks. We all have them. We all have them in our world. That's the reality. It's just the constant pressure that we're putting on our kids to somehow say this is who you are based on what you score is ultimately the problem. Yeah, I agree. I think the messaging is the problem. And also, I think the way assessments, and it has a tactical issues too, for example, if you just fail in a very rudimentary physics 101 or physics eighth grade formative test, if you will, and you come back and say, I suck at physics. That's not the message you want to take because like there was one podcast episode, Western Governors University president said, you know, you got a piano lesson at the end of each lesson. If the piano teacher says you fail this lesson, like then you have no incentive to learn piano. Like I use the example of golfing or hiking or piano or guitar or anything else other than a classroom where somebody says you fail or you pass. Learning is not about passing or failing. It's really about passing and progressing. You know, if you take 15 lessons to learn one simple Beethoven note, if you will, using piano, then so be it. doesn't mean that you're a failure. You're right. Messaging is a problem. And I want to get to the solution part soon, too, because you go into a lot of details about how to solve the problem. But the question I have is, to be fully frank, the first three or four chapters for me were you know, I did not like it because it was so much of it was about the current anxiety problem is because of education, current bankruptcy problem is because of education or the fact that, I don't know, we have global climate change. I know you didn't say that, but you were doing a lot of correlation with a lot of different problems, the education, knowingly or unknowingly. 
but I understand why you're doing it. But you also kind of solve it later saying, using this example of this kid, Jason, who comes to the counselor's office where his dad was angry at him. He had family issues. And there's another kid who was throwing temper tantrums where you're sitting in a classroom. He threw all the books in the bookshelf because he was having crisis. So the question is, how much of the societal problems we have today are because of education, caused by education, and how much of this is also personal and family unit responsibility? Where's the balance, you think? Yes, I definitely think I made the correlation as a point because obviously I'm going to have a certain angle to it. However, I will say, oh my gosh, it's multifaceted. Absolutely. But I do think that our education system is is one that's supposed to be quite empowering. It's supposed to have our young people be seen and heard. And so if they are having these problems at home, and to be fair, I worked in an underserved community. And so a lot of my students did have many multifaceted problems from home and were coming to school. But I did not always feel that we were necessarily empowering them. And that was really where my problems lied. It became another system of control. So, you know, they feel a lack of control at home. And now they're coming, they're going, well, why didn't you do your homework? Well, why didn't you turn in that assignment? You know, and so it was adding to the problems that already existed. So where does the intervention lie? I think that the education system can be quite intervening and it can be cultivating what already exists within the child, no matter what they're going on at home. Now, does that mean that we have to be a therapist or a counselor? No, but we just have to be more humanizing. A lot of what you feel in the education system is, well, whatever is going on at home is not important right now. We got things to do. We got test scores to do. So we're perpetuating this idea that we cannot see you fully. We just need to see you for this lesson as a student, and then you need to leave my classroom. That ultimately is the problem because, you know, where are we intervening with our young people? Now, some could say, well, there are counselors at schools. Absolutely. I'm not negating that the work that they're doing is very powerful and needed, but most schools are quite under-resourced and mental health is not necessarily a place that gets funded predominantly. More often than not, it's the testing that gets funded. (laughs) For me, it's more, how do we balance it out? We have become so far to the right on test achievement and data-driven instruction. And these kids need to support our economy one day and we need to make sure they are ready for that. And where do we start going, who are you right now? What are your needs? What are your interests? Oh, you love learning. How do we continue to cultivate that in you instead of telling you that you're only good at some subjects and not others, right? So there are many effects that we are having because we have so swung to one side that we're forgetting all these other parts that make up our students. I think the lack of counselors and lack of resources is a serious problem. This gets into the solution, right? Almost the first one third of the book is about the problem. And you started entering into this territory of peeling or unmasking yourself. I want to leave that for the next segment, but I want to talk to you a little bit about the solution itself, because one of the things that I was kind of excited about when you started reading is is this concept of mindfulness, consciousness on how you can promote the concept of sense of self. So number one, the question is, how did you arrive at that? What was the basis of your epiphany or revelation, if you will? And also, as an extension of that, you know, I see kids in high school and middle school full of hormones, growth trajectories, all sorts of societal pressures. 
how do we inculcate that level of mindfulness at kids that age? I mean, I'm sure you have some great anecdotes to tell, but yeah, <laughs> tell me about your journey on how you came up with that as the solution. And also what are some of the success stories? Yeah, absolutely. So I would definitely say that I did not come to that conclusion by any means early in my teaching career. I think when you are a first or second year teacher, you are there and you are surviving. <laughs> you are doing your best. You are learning about all the ropes it takes to actually lead a classroom. However, what happened for me, at least, is over time, by, by the time I was reaching my fourth, fifth year of teaching, you know, my kids, I could see that there was something going on, whether it was at home or in their community. And it really was hard for me because they would come into the classroom and I would say, well, sit down, start the warm up, and let's start the lesson for the day. And I couldn't believe that I was perpetuating that idea over and over again when I knew that was not necessarily what they needed in that moment. And so for me, that was when kind of like the ahas, kind of the curiosity came in a little bit. Now, in my personal life, teaching itself was very difficult. So I was trying to find ways to incorporate more self-care and really try to understand who I am in all of this. And actually, through that journey, I started incorporating more mindfulness and those types of things into my own personal life. And what was happening is I was seeing the transformation in my life. Right. And so I'm really big on practice what you preach. I was doing the work myself. And I, I will tell you something, you know, we live in a Western world where mindfulness has tended to be marketed that it will make you more productive and it will make you less stressed and you will be more present. And I would challenge it because in the Eastern cultures, it's all about doing this practice for life. It is not so you can become more productive. It is so you can actually connect with yourself on a deeper level. And that was exactly what I was doing. And so when I started doing that, one, I was showing up very differently in my classroom. Now, if you were to ask me, what are the data points, Como? Honestly, I can't give you many, but qualitatively, my room was different. I was more calm. I was more patient and I was more connected. I could tell when my kids were struggling with something, they didn't have to say anything. I was more present. I wasn't, you know, activated with my nervous system. I was more calm when I was stepping in, which helped. Now, when I started actually showing it to my kids, of course, you know, they're 10 and 11. They've been in the schooling system for what, five, six years now. If no one has shown them this, of course, they're going to push back. I mean, that's like all of us when our workplace tells us we have to do this thing every Friday or we all push back. We don't like change. And so that happened with my kids. But I was consistent. I did it every day with them. I would tell them the why behind what it takes to just two minutes of settling in and being here. Right. And what does that feel like? What does that look like? And the thing is, is a lot of the effects of these practices, it doesn't happen in just five to six months, which a lot of times are schooling and our workplaces want to see that. For me, it was when I visited my kids when I went back, you know, the year after and the year after that. And they're going, hey, Miss Shah, just make sure to breathe, right? Or hey, Miss Shah, just take a breath, you know? And I'm going, okay, you learn something, right? That can maybe help you for the rest of your life. So maybe we're on to something. If you talk about it on a systematic level, I talk a lot about you know, systems are made up of people. And if you want to change the system, you have to change the people first, because otherwise the system will not change. If we are all okay with the grading system and the test scores and the colleges, especially if it works for our kids, especially if it works for them and they can do well in it, 
then why would we change it? Right. But here's the thing is when we become more conscious, we have to start asking ourselves, well, this idea of success, is this really what I want for my kids? Is this what success actually looks like? Hey, my parents told this to me, but does that mean I have to put that on my kids too? Or can I change it? So we start have to asking ourselves many questions. And I think that's what I've had to uncover for myself. You know, am I teaching a math lesson every day, but does it pertain to their success right now? I don't know. And that was hard. No one likes to question that. You just want to do the, do the lesson plan every day and go home and relax with your friends on the weekend. But it was really starting to become conscious of the way that I was instructing and being a classroom teacher and really asking myself, was this actually best for my students? I mean, I like the concept of focusing on your breathing and you go into a lot of detail about the practices. So from a real world practice, what are you thinking? Let's say we implemented this program of conscientious student and raising awareness in a classroom. Are we thinking that every class should have a mindfulness pre and post classroom exercise? Are we thinking a consciousness day? Are we thinking a consciousness hour per day? Talk to us a little bit about the implementation of something like this. Well, first I will say it's already happening. So I'm not going to take credit for it. So mindfulness in classrooms and there's curriculum, there's programming around it that's already being integrated into many schools. And the reason is, is because we're seeing that our kids need it. So that's already happening. My push is, and I don't think we're necessarily there yet, is what does it look like to make this the foundation of our schooling, not supplemental? Because again, what are we messaging? That resting, that connecting with yourself, that is secondary to achievement. Achievement is first. Then we can do the rest, right? And you see over and over again as adults, we struggle with that. You know, when someone gets laid off from their job, yeah, there's financial implications, but they're also going, am I worthy now that I cannot make money? Because why? You've been told your whole life that your only value is your job and what you contribute in your job and your family. So what does it look like to think foundationally and there are schools out there that do it, might I add, I, I'm not saying as if it's never been done, because it has been, where they are really thinking about the culture and the vision of the school. And they're talking a lot more about emotional awareness and emotional intelligence. And the kids are going into every classroom. And there's a lot of conversation about socio-emotional learning before they even start their lesson, no matter what grade level they are. So it's all there, but you know, the mindset shift has to happen because more often than not as educators, we are resistant to that. Now, the first reason is we have a lot of pressure to reach certain standards and lesson planning and curriculum. So it's also how we're evaluated. But the second thing is if you yourself have never really felt comfortable with your own emotions, then how can you teach it to someone else? I always say it starts with us. We need to be the ones to implement this into our own life and bring more awareness into our lives in order to actually model it for our young people. In your earlier years as student or children, are there enough faculties built to be mindful? This is not a counterpoint. I'm just trying to have an open discussion about how kids' brains evolve. Because in a lot of ways, I think if I look at my own childhood, I was 
you know, completely ghoulish, you know, crazy person until I was probably finished my college years. There's a lot of blocking and tackling I was doing. There's a lot of, you know, assignment tracking for my own self. It's entirely possible that some of that was a byproduct of the education. But the only way I had to come to terms with my own emotions or my own upbringing was when I was dealt with some life-changing events like my own divorce or, you know, potential insolvency with the company I was leading. So that's when I was dealt with a lot of weird situations that I didn't know how to even express myself, forget about confronting them. So I completely agree with you. It's entirely possible that if I had the foundation of consciousness, I probably would have been better equipped when I grew and had to deal with that. But is that possible? Like, what are the things that colleges or schools can do to make this a priority, especially with the state and federal funding? Or does it require change in the way government itself implements education? It's both. You know, I think I could sit here and say, ideally, I would want it to be a top-down approach where we start to ask ourselves, you know, the way we're funding schools, is this working? And if we're testing based on our the school's API scores, and that's how much they're going to get funding per pupil, is that actually working? And, and the reality is that's why testing has become so important, because it's how schools get money. So of course, you're going to emphasize it, right? So it needs to be top down. But education has been one of those industries that has been the slowest to change. And it takes forever for policies to change around it. It's it's literally been an industry where it's like, well, this is the way we've always done it. I could ideally say that, but at the moment, I'm not in a position to even be in the top and in the government to actually make those changes a reality. So what I can say is that I'm trying to do a bottom-up approach, right, which is to actually start having these conversations with parents and teachers and people on the ground and going, what can we do, right, within the system that is built? But of course, you're going to hit roadblocks, and I empathize with that. But I am saying that it starts with yourself first, because you would be surprised is that when you do this conscious work yourself, things do shift and things do change. And your young people will see that. Now, to your point, will life always have the realities of the ups and downs? Absolutely. And that's another thing. I am not sitting here and saying, be conscious because your life will be happy all the time. Absolutely not. What I am instead saying is that I actually feel our young people are some of the most mindful people out there. They are very deeply connected. Watch a baby play in the dirt. Watch the baby pick a bug. Watch the baby look at the tree and the skies. They are very connected. In many ways, they get disconnected, right? right? When we say, stop looking there, do this, or don't do that right now, do this. And so what can we do to keep cultivating what already exists? It's already there. We don't have to do much, <laughs> but yeah. it's that awareness, right? And, you know, there is a conscious parenting movement. You know, I interviewed someone who does conscious parenting in her own life. I've had many conversations with parents who are doing it. So it's being talked about now, right? Like, oh, wow, when my child is angry, I probably shouldn't say stop that. My dad did, but I probably should say, oh, you're feeling angry. That is okay. That is normal. Let's give you some time and then let's navigate how you're going to channel that energy. That's really what should be said, right? Not stop that. But why do we say stop that? Because that's what we heard growing up. So we didn't know any different. 
<laughs> no, I think uh, I like it. And I also agree with you completely that, you know, obviously Eckhart Tolle, you cited him on in a couple of yeah. quotes on his in his book. And Eckhart Tolle is all about living in the present moment. And there's no other specimen of human being that's always present is the toddlers <laughs> or infants you can just basically play peekaboo and hide behind the curtain and like, you're gone. There's no, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> there's, there's no concept of past or present or future for them. So I agree with you. Taking a step back about parenting, and I really appreciated your own self-reflections there about mm-hmm. growing up in a patriarchal family where yeah. there were potentially some issues, you know, again, normal Indian parenting problems, yeah. because that's how they were always dealt with. Talk to us about how you came to terms with that kind of upbringing and elevate yourself to say, this is my status quo, but there's a different mm-hmm. way of doing it. And I'm going to be okay with making or forging my own way. But let's talk about that. Your, yeah. I think it's unmasking your peel, if you will, the way you called it. Yeah. I, yeah. It's a lot about unlearning, right? You know, I talk a lot about our brains, you know, there's neuroplasticity, there's a lot of research around it, and we can actually change our beliefs and our attitudes and our thoughts. I will say like growing up, I saw all of that, but I didn't necessarily question it. You know, I always say too, like I was a good student growing up in terms of what the system thought was a good student. You know, I did well. I was pushed to do well in education. I thought it was normal. I, I saw what I saw in my household with my parents and the way I was raised. And again, I didn't really have more context to really understand what served me and what didn't. And I will honestly say that I feel very lucky because I think innately I'm a pretty self-reflective person and always looking at parts of myself to understand more of what serves me and what doesn't. So I will say in many ways, it was a choice. It was a choice to go, you know, I'm going to start questioning my upbringing. I'm going to start really looking deeply as to what serves me and what doesn't. And I will say a big part of it that it was being a teacher. You know, I think teaching really pushes you just personally in many ways. And kind of what you said, I kind of had hit rock bottom. I was burnt out. You know, I was just trying to push along and and was navigating ways to do that. And so it was in those moments where I was speaking that I started to really go, okay, I need to start uncovering some parts of myself. And I think something you mentioned is I do talk about being messaged my whole life that your worth as an Indian woman is is to get married. <laughs> and I could have gone my whole life not questioning that. That's the reality. I could have gotten married. Many families generationally continue the same cycle and never question it. And I think for me, I did because I think for me, I was going, is that really like it for me? Is that what my worth is? And and to be fair, and I'm open about it with my mom, you know, she was pretty unfulfilled in her marriage for a lot of it. So then I had to really ask myself, well, do I want the same thing when I'm, I may just be as unfulfilled. You know, I always say the consciousness journey is not easy. For most of us, we find it when we do hit rock bottom, right? Whether it's a divorce or the death of someone or something happens in our lives that pushes us to really ask ourselves really difficult questions. And nowadays, I just do it for everything <laughs> because that's yeah, the way practice. I live my life. I think you said about the worthiness of a female. 
than a typical Indian family. But it's not a walk in the park for many there, especially no. like as boys. Your worthiness is defined by whether you're going to be a doctor or engineer. They actually call you an idiot or worthless if you do anything else. And I think that's kind of my upbringing as well. But I think different to you, I grew up in India and came to do my master's here. But you're absolutely correct. The worst thing is because of that characterization, I've never came to terms with it, whether my personality to keep moving forward, keep trying to do bigger things was because of that upbringing mm. or is it, is this who I am? Mm. I still don't know that, but I think after I came to terms with mindfulness, I've started to separate out my nature from nurture. Mm. But if you can build that cultivation, like you're describing early on, they can separate out saying my assessments, they are just a part of me, just like yeah. my face is just a part of me. And I can yeah. separate it out. And I as a being is not my grades, is not my shirt, is not yeah. my face, but holistically, I'm something else. Is that how you're thinking about it as a mindfulness journey? Yeah, absolutely. You know, I love that you said that first, because I have a brother. And so we definitely have conversations on both sides about it. And I will say, absolutely. I mean, I think we've become in a society too, where we really get stuck on parts of our identity, right? Like I always say like, yes, I'm a woman, but that's just a part of who I am. That is not who I am. The reality is, is that people will want to put you in boxes based on what you look like. And in our society, it tends to be usually gender and race and sexuality tends to be the ones that we talk about more often than not. But we are so many things. And so, again, the awareness comes down to how has my identity affected me and does what people have put me in a box for, does that align with me? Really, that's the question. So I'll give an example of like, if you were told your whole life you're a good student, right? You did well, you went to a good college and got a good company, you know, you work at Google, let's just say whatever it is. Okay, great. In the eyes of others, you are successful. Now, if every day you're coming home and you're going, I hate my job. The real question has to be, did what you do, does it feel aligned, right? And more, more often than not, it maybe doesn't, but you've been applauded by others for what you are doing. So now you need to go beyond the external validation. And you know, a lot of what consciousness is, and I say this because I think our education system is a part of the problem is we're constantly giving value based on things outside of ourselves. So it's like, can we connect back with us? People are going to tell you, Como, your value is when you write the second book, right? Your value is when you do a TED Talk or when you are on 30 podcasts. You know, I mean, I could come up with a million things, but then how do I just say, well, I'm worthy now no matter what I do? It's that question. Yeah, I think there's three dimensions to this problem. And I don't know where education fits in with causality. Because I think, you know, all the things you're talking about, progression, is also societal. For example, if you put your yeah. book on Amazon... And if you don't get, I don't know, X number of reviews on Amazon, you're not successful. Like, right. <laughs> it's not like, you know, Bezos set it up or our education system made it, but there is inherently humans are built by some milestones and standards, but I don't know what the cause is. And there are some theory, behavioral science theories about 
you know, all animals are focused on some hierarchy. There's an alpha, there's a beta, and that's why we all seek to become alphas. I think it's possible that that's what is doing it, but yeah. I think we've taken it to the whole new level by adding a lot more quantitative measures. You know, stepping back to what you're saying, no matter what that Amazon rating is or what my grade is or where I stand in the Inc. 5000, if I'm convinced that I'm doing the right thing, I'm fighting for the right cause, and I'm happy with who I am, all of those are just features that yeah. I can boast about, but I'm still happy with who I am. Is that the kind of the summary of your argument for consciousness? Yeah, I think it is. And I like that you said that. Like I said, we've just let the pendulum swung too much to one side. And so it's how do we bring it back? You know, I, I do feel that we, at least what I see, and who am I to say, right? But I do think there are many people out there who feel pretty misaligned with who they truly are. And for so long, they've never been able to uncover it. And maybe they've been in spaces where no one questioned it. So they just kept doing it. And I hope we get to a place where people just start to feel more aligned and empowered in who they are. And I don't say happiness for a reason, because happiness is fleeting. It's an emotion. So we feel different things at different times. So I don't mean to say you're going to be eternally happy, because that's not true. It's just living with the place of awareness, right? And so if you were to ask me, hey, Como, when you have a kid one day, what do you want for them? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want them to be kind, empathetic humans who feel like they have a contribution to the world in some capacity and are able to financially support them in whatever way works for them, right? That's all that matters. And if you were to ask me what college they should go to, I'm going, that's an option if that's something that they want. So it's like, how do we start being okay with that? Just kind of letting that happen. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. My son is a senior in high school and we always have this discussion saying, if I can only get an admission in Stanford, you all yeah. will be so proud of me. Like, I don't care which college you go to. I am proud of you regardless. You know, hell, if you decide to go to community college, why does it matter if that's what you want to do? So, but I think that's that inculcation that we have to do a better job as parents yeah. and obviously to build it in. But I want to talk to you a little bit about what drives you, because I think there's a lot of mindfulness inside you and you're trying to yeah. promote it. The fact that you were originally planning to become a doctor and into pre-meds <laughs> and decided to become a teacher, you kind of committed yourself to a place of service, if you will. Now you're a yeah. published author. What drives you? What makes you commit yourself to the causes that you believe in? One, I will say it's innate. I can't explain it. I think we all have it in some capacity. Mine just happens to be this one. So I think it's an indescribable thing. That's that question, like what lights you up, right? For me, this lights me up. So I know that I'm doing the right thing or in the right direction because it lights me up. And, you know, the second thing I will say is I've had a lot of miracles in my life. You know, I, like I said, I thought I was going to go into healthcare and spontaneously apply to a program that changed my life. And so I got lucky in that way. But I say like the reason I wake up every morning is for children. That's why I do what I do. That is my fuel. Because I think our children are what do right now and in the future will make up our humanity and make up our society. So I want every child to wake up and be able to know that they themselves, whoever they are, are valued and can be empowered in their lives and be connected to who they are. Because ultimately, I think our society needs more adults 
who have childhoods like that. <laughs> if we can give that to them, then that that's all that matters to me. I, I've seen too many kids become robbed of who they are to please others. I hope we can start realizing that they have a lot to offer just themselves. That's awesome. I love your cause. I love your commitment and all your accomplishments. Komal, it's been an absolute pleasure to talk to you. I enjoyed every minute of it. I learned a lot from this. Thank you for joining Illuminate Higher Education Podcast. Thank you so much. It was a great conversation. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Illuminate Higher Education, sponsored by End-to-End Services and our Illuminate app. If something we said today resonated with you, please subscribe, rate, and download our podcast and share this episode with your network. You can learn more about Illuminate app at illuminateapp.com and continue the conversation with us there. If there are any topics you'd like us to discuss further, please email them to us at podcast at n2nservices.com. That's podcast at n2nservices.com. Thank you.